And I started to think like, this is the, this is the work of life is negotiating the sense of grim comedy and then the sense of what's actually really happening that's so much harder to negotiate and deal with and feel. And I think that's something that funnily enough is a thread in all of our work. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. This episode, we're bringing you an exclusive panel discussion, creating and talking tone with your team, presented by the DGA's Special Projects Committee. While tone is probably the strongest element that defines a project, it surprisingly is often the least discussed on a feature film, pilot, or first season of a television show. Last month, directors Jonathan Dayton and Valerie Ferris Karn Kusama, and David O. Russell met to discuss techniques for determining and subsequently communicating the ever-elusive but critical aspect of tone in a conversation moderated by director Valerie Weiss. During the event, panelists discussed how the topic of tone is implemented throughout their projects and shared their advice on how to achieve tone through different methods like music, casting, and opening shots. Listen on to hear what has and has not worked on their productions. Good morning. Good morning. The poet Robert Frost once observed that the tone of a voice can mean more than words. Now, I don't think we're talking about that kind of tone. It's going to be a bit different discussion. In fact, I actually remember the very first time I ever heard the word come to a tone meeting. I had directed a bunch of features, I had done movies for television and episodic TV, won an Emmy for that, and now I was stepping into a room for a tone meeting. It was on a show called West Wing, and I didn't quite understand it. Tommy Schlamy had already created an incredible visual style, Aaron Sorkin had written a brilliant script and was incredible actors. So what was this tone meeting? Now, I still don't remember much, but we're going to find out a lot more about what tone meetings mean and how they have evolved since back then. Um, the, the director, Adam McKay, once said, the only thing a director really does is set the tone. And to set the tone for this discussion, by the way, I'm Jeremy Kagan, the Special Projects Chairperson, just to introduce myself. Thank you. But to set the tone for this discussion, let me introduce to you the person who initiated the idea for this panel, Director Valerie Weiss. Director Valerie Weiss. Thank you all for being here. This is really, really exciting. And thank you to Jeremy and the Special Projects Committee for uh, setting me up to be able to do this. Um, as a filmmaker, my tastes have always gravitated towards movies and television shows that mix genre and come out with their own unique sensibilities. I think my first experience really discovering that this is what I was drawn to was seeing Pedro Motivar's Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown in Spanish class. And that is when I knew I wanted to be a director. I then became a scientist and then became a director. But at that point, I think I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Um, and so I'm so thrilled that today this committee, the Special Project Projects Committee, has afforded me the opportunity to put together 
literally an all-star panel of directors who have made careers out of navigating tone expertly. I am so thrilled to have them here, and let me please introduce them. We have David O. Russell, writer and director of Flirting with Disaster, Three Kings, Silver Linings Playbook, American Hustle, and most recently Amsterdam. David, would you like to come up? We have Valerie Ferris and Jonathan Dayton, whose films include Little Miss Sunshine, Ruby Sparks, Battle of the Sexes, and the pilot and pivotal episodes of the limited series Fleischman is in Trouble. And last but certainly not least, we have Karin Kusama, whose work includes The Invitation, Jennifer's Body, Destroyer, and The Yellow Jackets pilot. Please welcome these amazing guests. So I just want to start with a little housekeeping. We won't be doing a Q&A today. We will have plenty of time to chat, which is great. And I, I feel like having thought about this topic for over a decade, I think I'm going to cover everything you guys might want to know. So I hope that I hope that's true. So just to give you a little insight, Valerie and I spoke, and she was asking me, well, what, what made you want to do this panel? And I remember when I, I just finished my science PhD, and and I wrote my first movie, which was... Um, combination of a screwball romantic comedy and a science espionage thriller. And, you know, I was like, okay, I, I know, I think I know what I want this to be, but I had sort of two very disparate influences. Um, the one I mentioned, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, very much informed the plot and the characters, but my all-time favorite comedy was Flirting with Disaster. And I just loved the naturalism, the grounded characters, and you had such absurd situations, but they were so real. And so these are obviously two such very different looking films. They both made me feel the same way emotionally. But so I really grappled in that first film with how do I figure out what it's supposed to be? Am I supposed to take something from here or there? And, you know, what is and am I supposed to just instinctively know what the tone should be? Or is it more of a calculus, like the cinematography does this, the production design does this, the actors are doing this. And I have always wondered, how do other people do it? And we have, you know, the biggest masters of tone in my book. I mean, I will say I got my dream panel. So I'm really, really thrilled that we get to ask them this question today and many others. But I just want to start, before we get into that specific question, let's just talk a little bit about what is tone. And does anyone want to start? <laughs> I mean, it's it's funny because I think before this panel, I had to think about that, and it is this interesting uh, word that applies to so many things. It applies to color, it applies to sound, it applies to light, it applies to the feeling of a conversation, um, and I do think all of those qualities almost literally and figuratively go into the notion of how we establish tone on screen you know it, it literally color light sound feeling pace all of those things great thank you anyone else uh, I was gonna say just I think one thing that sort of determines or starts where we start with tone for the two of us is probably the humor like we usually if we tap into the humor of something, that's usually, if we get that right, or that's the thing that we tend to agree on, like if something makes us laugh or if it's funny. I mean, it, and we've most of the time done stuff that has humor in it, so that's one thing that I think we can, um, that 
you sort of can uh, weed out the people that don't get, if they don't get the humor, then they probably shouldn't work with you on the film. You know, I think, <laughs> and I think the tone is kind of the thing that you, uh, you know, finding your team is probably one of the most important, your collaborators is the most important part of getting the tone right. Or it's, it may be really obvious, but. <laughs> That's great. Those are such great answers. And I want to go more into how do we find those collaborators and also how do we communicate? How do we um, emit what we think and feel into their consciousness? Um, so let's, and I'd love to hear from all of you about this question. So going back to that initial idea, when you read a script, or in your case, when you write a script, do you instinctually know what the movie is or the, the pilot? Or is it something, like, do you see it? Or is it something that you then have to, not back into, but create, like, a recipe? Um, I'll have this much of this and this much of this, and together, I hope it tastes like this. Um, could you guys each speak to that? Okay. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's different for every film. Every film's like a different child, right? And, and they come together... Uh, somebody said this recently, uh, uh, a brilliant person, uh, Rick Ross, Rick Rubin, Rick Rubin, the producer, right? Yeah. Who's Rick Ross? <laughs> is, he, is he somebody? No? Okay. Actually, there is a guy named Freeway Rick Ross who was a famous drug dealer. Yeah, 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 you yeah, know, because he's, he's, he's out of prison now and he's a good guy. No, no, it's true. And he's a... Uh, and they called him Freeway because this is already a good character, right? And I think he's trying to make it a movie, which will be a good movie, because he was right, on, right close to that freeway. So if you need to pick up your drugs in Compton, you could just get out of there very quickly. Um, Rick Rubin said, um, we are vessels, and the main thing he does creatively is to have your antenna open. And this was, I'm always learning, we're always learning. You know, you do, you're fortunate enough to do something special and magical when things conspire. You know, I never thought I would get to do The Fighter, which defined a 10-year run of movies for me, um, which by, I would have passed on it five years earlier. And by the time I got it, I was grateful to get it. And it had been through a very serious Dardan brothers phase with Darren Aronofsky. And I said, who are the Dardan brothers? And I went and watched it, and it was, you know, real serious, sad drug couple in Paris. You know, and I said, well, I don't want to make that film because the family themselves had so much personality and were so funny and so tragic and such a mess. And I realized my own extended family from the boroughs of Bronx to Brooklyn were a great asset and not an embarrassment. Um, and, and, and it's often the embarrassing things that you dare yourselves to do, frankly. I mean, I think my, some of the most inspiring films I've ever seen that have crazy things happen in them, they're simultaneously serious Serious, it's people's commitment and how much they care about something that makes it both really serious and emotional and absurdly funny unexpectedly. And the more they're committed, you know, you never tried to be funny in The Fighter. Everybody just was desperately committed to their world and it helped that the world was sort of particular and odd. Silver Linings was a character desperate to reclaim his life, which I could personally relate to because my own... One of my own children had gone through this, who's grown now, you know, who'd end up, De Niro had a child who had gone through this. So we felt the heart of that real strong. We also had been through many experiences that involved the police and tears, 
that were also somehow weirdly hilarious in some other way. Um, they were both. So you get to, but you 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 gotta you kind of gotta really commit to the. You grab the audience and you you're just shocking and moving them emotionally and making them cry. And then all of a sudden, Bob's walking in his pajamas, Bob De Niro, at night with a bloody nose, and somehow somehow that's sort of funny in a weird way. Um, and Albert Camus said, you know, life is pretty ridiculous, you know, um, in all of its awfulness and its, uh, and its absurdity. So it all, it's all there. It's all right there. Great answer. Thanks, David. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I love that, too, in terms of tone when it's almost hard to distinguish between the funny moments and the kind of most painful moments. And I think, I mean, we always... Um, I think when we first read something, we both have to feel like we know how to do it. We might not exactly know at that moment how it's going to work, but it's just it's something we feel close enough to and um, that we can spend two years or five years of our lives thinking about it. That's another big part of it is how long are you, how can you be interested in enough and love it enough that you can spend the time? Because... It always takes more time than you think, and um, but but I think that is you know it's what I think we love about or I love about your films is that they have it can shift between something hilarious and then something so tragic and um, you know I think that's something that if you have all the right people assemble and everybody's committed in the same way and love the same thing you love about it or just feel that love for it for the material then those kind of moments can happen where they're not so strictly comedy or strictly drama. Tra drama. Yeah. yeah. But we always play things like drama anyway, too, because yeah, I think... I was surprised that you did the Billie Jean King movie, Real Drama. <laughs> I was expecting more Miss Sunshine, Little Miss Sunshine. Uh -huh. But hey, that's my problem. Well, <laughs> why is that your problem? I mean, because it's not, you know, it's, it was not, the filmmakers made the film they wanted to make. <laughs> well, I was so excited. Well, we could talk about I that. was so excited to get that. I got the, anyway, I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm struck by what you said, David, about, you know, there are certain moments in your life where you read a script and you're ready to make it, and certain projects that we've taken on that didn't happen, I now look back and go, my God, thank God they didn't. And, and I could never do those things now. You're sort of ready at a moment. We did Little Miss Sunshine when we were in the throes of raising our kids and managing our family. And the last thing we just did, Fleischman, you know, it's about a bunch of middle-aged people coping with their marriages disintegrating and not that ours <laughs> is, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but just, you know, you, the, the, the people around you suddenly realize, what am I doing with this person? So, um, you know, it's very much uh, this mixture of I know how to do this and I have no, no idea how to do it, but I feel like it's within reach or I'd like to learn how to do this. Or it's speaking to you at the right. moment because I think something we all share as filmmakers, in my opinion, is an interest in and an embrace of um, what I would call a, a messier approach to tone in that there's huge dynamic fluctuations in the tonal gestures of each and every film to some degree, whereas I do think there could be filmmakers up here who command an incredible purity of tone, and that is itself an incredible 
direction to take, but also then requires a commitment to a very, um, well, you mentioned the Dardenne brothers. Like that's such an interesting reference because they have a complete commitment to this naturalistic, verite, quiet, tonal experience in the filmmaking. And it's actually impossible to imagine the fighter in that vein um, because you saw into the material differently. And so I think that's always interesting too, like where are we with the tone we're attracted to? And I'm still really attracted to tone that um, sort of ricochets or moves a lot in its feeling. And um, I think that's kind of means you put yourself at risk to fail. Um, lot. I certainly can claim that for myself, but I think that roller coaster is part of the challenge that I find interesting in the filmmaking process. Karen, I love that you call it a messy approach because I think what you mean is that you let the lines bleed between comedy, drama, horror. They're not so tough and distinct, which is I think why I love all your work so much because it just feels like humanity. It feels like being in the world. When I watch your movies, I don't think of anything else. I'm fully, fully enveloped. And so, um, but it's, they're never messy in terms of execution. They are so, because it's so hard to do something messy well, right? It's, they're so clear. And so let's use that to tr transition to the question of when you're working with your collaborators, given that you do have such unique sensibilities, how do you transition those novel ideas of what you want to a team, and, and you can start by talking about how you hire them or not, but what are the tools you use? Um, for example, I, I spoke to Mark Mylod, who's also a brilliant master of tone. I loved his movie, The Menu, which is dark comedy and satire and horror. And he, when I spoke to him, he talks about, he talks, he talks a lot, um, maybe more than other people want him to, he said humbly, but the process of talking, you start to then find patterns and trends in what you're saying. And so that's how he seems to transmit ideas to his team. But I'm curious how, how you guys like to work. I'll jump in with like an example. Yes, I'm, I'm thinking of how it gets communicated at the smallest kind of, the smallest details of the work that we all do. And I'm thinking particularly about probably one of the biggest challenges I ever had in shooting, which was a sequence in Jennifer's body in which Megan Fox's character kind of tells the origin story of her demonic possession and essentially recounts the story of being sacrificed um, in the name of a lame indie rock band's ambition for fame. And so it's already a absurd situation. And shooting it, um, though on the page, it would be very easy to say this is obviously absurd. Um, while I had a real human, presumably tied to a rock, um, surrounded by by men, um, I was extremely aware of the uh, the nature of what that looked like and the terror of it. And when you're shooting, you have so many people standing by ready to, to kind of come in and do the work they need to do. And hair and makeup is a big part of that. 
and they were standing by and I realized, no, you can't go in and retouch. We can't, that's not what this scene is. The more she cries, the more the mascara runs, the more her face becomes a, a mask of genuine abject terror, the more the scene is working because the scene has to make a shift from we're laughing, we're laughing, we're feeling the absurdity, and then we stop feeling it. And the point is we stop feeling it and have to ask ourselves why we laugh in the first place. And had hair and makeup just gone in and kept wiping away the evidence of the anguish on her face, um, it would be a different scene, I think. And so those kind of things are so small and particular, but they really do lend themselves toward, um, I think, how we register the emotional you know, timber of a scene. And it's such a brilliant scene, and it does everything you said. It's heartbreaking, and the movie, I mean, it's funny, it's horrific, it's, it's thoughtful about you know, gender roles. It, it's all of those things, and then that sequence, it's amazing because you're like, okay, is it going to be funny? When's it going to be funny? Oh my God, this is this is terror. This is this is terrorizing me. And then, but you still have a little bit of the humor with Adam Brody's character because of the way he's constructed. I mean, it's it's so well put together. And so, I'll, I'll ask you guys about this too. But just to get back to your question about your, what you said about the knowing there's this mascara mask, and then there's a moment when you should have a different revelation about it. Is that something you know so specifically going in? Do you know that moment you want? Or is it a discovery when you see Herbert Mascara running, you're like, ooh, okay, okay, this is this is interesting. I mean, for me, it was a discovery because oh, I, I recognized that though the script made me laugh hysterically, laugh till I cried, it would be a missed opportunity to not dig deeper into the tone and 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 I would say that like in the I think all of us up here what we're what I notice in our work collectively is we give permission to the audience mm -hmm. to have a relationship and engage with the work so there's permission to laugh there's permission to suddenly feel an overwhelming sense of tragedy and sadness and I think that's part of the the challenge, right? Like creating the guardrails, but saying, yeah, no, you can knock against those and you can sometimes break through them. That's great. Thank you so much, Karin. Does anyone want to talk about earlier in the process, how you communicate that to your team, what you're looking for? Do you use sizzle reels or lookbooks or? Well, we, I mean, we have the luxury that there are two of us. So we, we first have to get on the same page, but we also have to just understand what it is we're, conveying and sometimes we'll act out the scene uh, <laughs> with each other or you know like in Little Miss Sunshine you know the script just talked about this climactic dance scene but it you know and it said that she does these sexual moves that offend the audience and yet you know we had to figure out how can we offend the audience in the movie but not the audience in the movie theater you know you know so um and and just you know what does it look like when a little when a 12 year old starts or 10 year old they were called violent pelvic thrusts I yeah think. and so so we would like do them and look and go you know i i don't i don't think that's gonna 
you know. I don't think a little girl can actually do those without it being kind of scary and awful looking. You know, it was like when we tried it, we just thought, she can't do that. Like it'll 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 be so uncomfortable, and that's not the um, reaction that we wanted. So so we you know would slowly come up with just different moves, and we had a choreographer who really took it home. But we just had to understand well what's the nature of it. But then the breakthrough was when we realized that if she did a strip tease, she could think, oh, I get to wear this sparkly coat, and then underneath it is another cool thing, and I'm just gonna show all these different yeah. yes and well and that was an example sorry no. i know this happens all the time uh <laughs> it was the example of our costume designer nancy steiner um she said what if she has like rip off um you know jogging pants like the Vel- velcro pants and then that sort of led to the whole idea of the strip tease which made sense because her grandfather was the one who taught her the dance and he went to club, strip clubs. So, you know, it, it's so funny how, I mean, that's another thing, Michael Arndt, who wrote the script and we are, have worked with a lot, he he always says the answers are in the script. Like if you're having a problem with the scene, he, he, and, and everybody, I guess, says that, but you go back and you find there's there are answers in other parts of the script. Like the fact that he went to strip clubs, it made so much sense. She'd be doing a strip tease, but we never thought of that until we actually got into designing the costume. So, I mean, the, the, that's what's so great about, I guess, if you have the right team, those ideas come from all over. And, um, you know, it can be just, if everybody's invested in the story, I mean, that's the greatest thing. I think it's probably my favorite part of, making films is when you feel like you're on a set with everybody who is invested in it in some way that they, um, you know, so that you're getting, you don't feel like, oh, I don't want comments from that person. I don't want to hear what they think, you know. I mean, I guess that can be the case sometimes, but it's nice when you feel like your collaborators are contributing and sometimes the best ideas come from those um, those meetings or when they're Even doing set, their job. You know, yeah. like you're in the 11th hour and someone says, well, what if we did this? And then, you know, you're, you, you, you welcome that breakthrough. Yeah, it's, it's great. You know, everybody, it's great when everyone loves what they're doing. You know, everybody loved being in, the, in Lowell, Massachusetts, making the fighter, getting to know the family. There was real, everybody was excited about it. And they knew that it was full of surprises because the real family was full of surprises. Here's an example of tone in that movie that was a debate with the producers. Uh, it's a culmination of a lot of things as we approach the third act. Christian Bale gets out of jail because the movie goes very hardcore because he was a criminal who went in jail many times in real life. Also a very sweet and charming human being, as drug addicts can be, both, right? So depending on the day. So he gets out of jail. There's a big reunion for him. The, 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 the team of sisters which was like a great, brilliant discovery. And when I found out that they really did have a fist fight on that porch, I was never happier. You know, because, 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 because I knew that the audience felt so in, interested in the whole world, but also the fact that there was a feud, like a Jerry Springer-like feud in this family that was no joke. You know, like you could cut the tension with a knife when Mark Wahlberg and... Amy Adams walked into that room with all the sisters and Melissa Leo and Christian Bale. It was like, oh, my God. You could feel the audience going, oh, God, this is going to be good. And then so what happens at the end is he, they have a cake for him, but Mark says, I can't, we cannot have 
this cake. He's not going to be with me anymore. He's a, he's a criminal and a junkie, and I made a promise to everybody. And so Christian's going to explode, and he's leaving the gym, which means he's probably going to go use drugs again. Um, there's the cake, right? It says, welcome back, Dickie. And I said, I think you should take the cake with you. This was, this, was, this was on the day. And I asked for a specific cake, and I love everybody on the team. Everybody on the team is doing it together and coming up with their ideas in every trailer, you know, the prop trailer, the wardrobe trailer. That I love the prop master. I love every department. You know, and everybody's giving ideas. And I love, I, I love getting all the ideas from everybody. And uh, every... So I said, the cake said, welcome home, Dickie, the pride of Lowell, which was a very sore point at the heart of the movie. Who was the pride and who was the shame, right? Because he really had become the shame. So I said, you take the cake, you take the cake, literally. So he takes the cake on his walk through town. It's a very existential walk through town. He's walking through the town that at the beginning of the movie, he had a heroic march through town. How does a, how does a road paver have a heroic march through town like a local hero. We had to establish that the community was a character. We had to establish that they were beloved. These sweaty road pavers were champions to this town. So we did that in an exuberant thing. We had like four beginnings. The, the, the very Tay interview, where Christian's just being Christian and Mark doesn't say a word. And people get, this is, this is funny and serious. And then you get the beginning of when they're, uh, he describes their home movies, how they were kids, eight millimeter, of how their mother taught them to box. And you see Melissa Leo when they were kids, and it's right there with Christian. Then you get that they're paving the road and Christian's goofing around, not wanting to work. And you get that. And then you get this exuberant march through town with this dolly shot that's shot back. We took the governor off the, the uh, golf cart so it could go down the street because the community of Lowell has these... It's like 300 years old, so it has these little symmetrical houses like that make a telescoping thing if you go down fast. So then you kicks off. You could feel the energy. And that's all about energy, isn't it? We didn't just pick one energy, right? We had like five energies there that I just named, right? Which is, I feel so happy when I can do that. Um, and the energies and the audience is into every one. So by the time he takes the cake uh, for his ashamed walk through town, it's all over his arm. Oh, now we have a continuity problem, right? So it's everybody starts coming in, right? And the producers are like, but I decide, I go, wait, wait, wait. me and Christian and Amy are like, no, 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 this is good, this is good. Because he's about to have this come to Jesus. You think to take, the cake becomes a symbol. He goes to see the junkies who are welcoming him back to the crack house, right? And it's like, oh my God, he's going to go back to the crack house. But instead, he doesn't say a word. They're all excited. He just looks at them and he just gives them the cake. And they don't know what that means. They're like, what, what was that? And then he walks away. And he's licking the frosting. Why? Because you realize later from the muses, you don't always know why. You trust your instinct, right? It felt instinctively right to all of us, right? He had given his heart and soul and legacy to the junkies. Mm -hmm. When you become a junkie, you give your life away to the junkies. So when he gave them the cake that said the pride of Lowell, he was giving them, and he was saying to them, I'm done with you. I'm not giving you my pride anymore. Then he goes to Amy Adams' house and makes the great sacrifice. It's great when you have characters who hate each other and makes no secret about it. And I just love that scene, you know. And, and there was and I and there was a guy walking by with a cocker spaniel in the middle of the fight. In the middle of the fight, he goes, 
what kind of dog is that? Is that a Cocker Spaniel? <laughs> well, 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 Amy Adams is down, and I loved the shot up to the window. She's like, get off my effing porch, you piece of shit, you know? And he's like, would you just come down here and talk to me? And she, I love her stare after that. She's just like, <laughs> she's thinking. And then she comes down. And then they just go at it hard. But he's there to make peace, to make a sacrifice for his brother, right? Deep scene, they go at it hard. He guts her. You're just a bar girl. You didn't, what did you ever do with your life after she gutted him? You're a fraud. You never knocked down Sugar Ray Leonard. These are, these, are gut, these are people gutting each other. And you feel it. And Amy's eyes are just brimming with tears. She's an extraordinary actress, you know? And so, and uh, just two extraordinary actors going at it. And then here comes the cake frosting. See, because she goes right this is the kind of filmmaking we're always reaching for, the trifecta, right? Right, with all these tears, okay. So right before they make their final agreement, she goes, what is that blue shit all over your arm? <laughs> he goes, it's icing. That's the end of that conversation. <laughs> he goes, it's icing. And she, she, he goes, she goes, so I'll see you in Mickey's corner. It's a deal. We'll be together for Mickey's sake. We're gonna put down our fight. Otherwise, go fuck yourself. Right, which takes the sentimentality out of it. Right, they they're not going to become friends. Uh, so that was a great example for me. Uh, in in Silver Linings, Robert De Niro, you know, is Robert De Niro explosively from Robert De Niro, right? From 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 Raging Bull, from Goodfellas, right? And you know that Bradley Cooper's a ticking time bomb. We started off serious. You must start serious, in my opinion. You must be dramatic. Don't try to be. Other movies can try to be funny that I love. You know, but this, this kind of movie, this kind of Hal Ashby type of movie, sometimes this Billy Wilder movie type, or our movies, they start very serious, right? The person's very serious. His stakes are serious. He's got to get out of the hospital. He's got to get back into his home. And as soon as he comes home, it's a panoply of lies and misrepresentations. And the mother said, don't tell your father I told you that he's bookmaking and, 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 he's, and he's not doing the right thing. And don't tell him that I got you out of the hospital early. All the great lies people do in, Holly, in families to help each other. So that's happening, which becomes weirdly funny. And De Niro, you know, he's, you've heard that he's been kicked out of the veteran stadium. He's been banned for fighting. And you know that he had an explosion with Bradley in Bradley's bipolar episode. They went at it. They fought, you know, in their pajamas, you know, uh, when Bradley was trying to find his wedding video. And it's like Chekhov's gun in the first act, right? You know, that gun's got to go off by the third act, right? She introduced the gun. So when's Bob going to go off again? And this is when Bradley comes back from the Eagles game. And Bob does full-on, full raging bull, but it's real. He's really, really, really mad and upset that Bradley broke his heart and got into trouble at the game. And he, he wants mostly for his son to heal. His passion is for the family to heal. And now he, his superstitions and his OCD is exploding that you blew it. And the line that always makes Jennifer Lawrence cry is when he says to his son, you're a loser. You're a loser. And Bradley's begging him, please, don't call me that. And right at this horrible, sad, tragic moment, in comes Hurricane Jennifer Lawrence to take over the movie, when nobody really knew who Jennifer Lawrence was, really. Hunger Games had not come out. And she comes in because he, he broke her, his commitment to her. 
So now the two agendas are colliding that have been competing. And now reversals will happen that will make the audience's minds explode with delight. Suddenly Jennifer, who's been called crazy, stay away from her, is bonded and allied with Bob. And Bradley's going, what is happening? I don't understand why you guys are now together. And now I'm out. And now we've set up the third act. And that scene was, that's, I, and I, every time I write a script or try to make a movie, I go, how did I do that? <laughs> and I know every actor I know, and many filmmakers I know, still say, how did I do that? It's like a magic trick you did that arrived. And then you have to go, you have to retrace your steps to how it happened to try to get, you ever do that? Like, how did I do that? Yeah. Well, it's like you have to be open to surprise and, yeah. and open to not knowing. I mean, I think to your earlier question, Valerie, about like how much you know, it's like, of course you want to have an instinctual attraction to the material. You must have that if you're going to devote your life to it because you will devote your life to it and you'll work harder on it than anybody else in the process. But you also have to have this sort of humility going in that you have no idea what may happen, what may come to you, who may come to you with a great idea, even when you might frankly detest the person bringing that great idea. Like that happens. And it's, it's, a, it's a period of ongoing like self-investigation. It's something about what you were saying about silver linings, David, made me think of like how I had this formative experience as a young person in my early mid twenties. Um, and my, I'm just going to get personal here. My brother had passed away and, um, it was a shock and he was only 24 and it was, uh, you know, just a sort of hidden life with a drug, drug, drug overdose. And we all gathered in my family's home in St. Louis and people kept bringing hams to the house. <laughs> and I just, at a certain point, I like threw my hands up, like, what the fuck is it with a spiral ham? Like, is that the, the food of mourning? You know, like, but, but it actually became this hilarious centerpiece of our dining room, all these hams that were assembling. And I started to think like, this is the, this is the work of life, is negotiating the sense of, just grim comedy I feel about these fucking hams and then the sense of what's actually really happening that's so much harder to negotiate and deal with and feel. And I think that's something that funnily enough is a thread in all of our work. You know, the the hams on the dining room table, given the circumstances. And our lives probably. (laughs) And our lives. You know, I mean, I think like if it feels so much like the way life operates, and I guess that's you're always sort of trying to get moments that feel like, yeah, that's that feels true to me. Like those those moments you're describing, or that I mean, that's an amazing one that um, it, it shapes I haven't seen your on concept film. of tragedy. Yeah, ex- yeah. But, I, um, I think that's absolutely a through through line for you guys, and and what's so great about your films, and so. But you all have such a tremendous grasp on the craft, and your films have so much style, and I mean that in the best way. Um, and my question that this leads me up to is, you know, if I see a film that's very stylish but doesn't have heart, then I, I just check out. It's not for me. But you guys have, been, have managed to be able to infuse your films with so much emotionality, but at the same time have such a 
strong handle on the, the composition and the way it's shot and the tools of filmmaking. And so, I mean, you've sort of uh, given us a foreshadowing of why. I mean, clearly you all think about characters so deeply and you are so perceptive about the lives you're leading and self-aware, but maybe you can talk about how that interplay between um, just the stuff that's more emotional works with the more technical aspect of being able to then translate it onto the screen, if, if that makes sense. Um, there was a music video that we saw years ago for um, ASAP Rocky that used this camera device that I think an artist in England had... Tony Hill, I think. Had, had invented. And it was just this arm that would move from ground level up and arch over and then hit the ground on the other side. And, you know, you can you, you turn the world upside down. And it was, it was used incredibly in this video. And it was just this thing that we thought, ah, I love that little piece of filmic language. I wonder where we could use it, where it would have meaning and, and you know, load a scene. And then um, when Fleischman came up, you know, um, it just felt like, oh, maybe this could be where we apply that. And, and then if we were to apply it, how could we build on it? And, you know, how could we make it more than just a one-trick thing that it, that it just felt organic? And, you know, there were clues. You know, the, the cover of the book is this upside-down uh, image of New York. But, you know, we had to work for a while. And, we, and this is where, you know, your partners, we, we had a, a great DP... Corey Walter, who, um, you know, he contacted the artist and, you know, worked out, you know, how it was done. And then we just continued to explore how to technically achieve it on a, you know, a, a production where you're racing through and you don't have time for it to fail or not, you know, do what you want. You have actors performing, so it's not, but, um, you know, it's, it is, it can start with just interest in some little trick. And that, that's so perfect. And, I, and later I want to talk about openings, but it's the perfect thing to open Fleischman because you literally, the series is going to flip our perspective on its head. We're going to start with one perspective and then we're going to be like, oh my God, there's another person in this marriage. What do they think? So it is the perfect opening image. So my question to you is how many years before did you discover that technical tool and how much restraint you must have had to wait for the perfect moment to use it? It was a couple years, right? Wouldn't you say? So I don't remember. I mean, the, the time period is hard to kind of... <laughs> I mean, I feel like the last five years, I can't say when something <laughs> happened. But, um, but I guess I, I would say, like, we watch a lot of videos. They're just fun to see what people are doing and, um, you know, kind of see what new devices are using or just the style of filmmaking. But um, I think we saw it, like, probably within a year. But that that... Flip just stuck with us. I mean, it could have been two years because it was just so dramatic. It's a great video. Um, and I still think, you know, I, I think we did okay with it, but the video is really cool. It's just, yeah, it's worth looking at. Ace Rocky forever, right? Isn't that what it's called? It's really good. But, you know, you so you have this device, and then you go, well, what, you know, some some moments will just have the world upside down. We won't flip it. Um and there was a moment in, in this one episode where Clay Dane, Claire Dane's character is, is having a breakdown. And it, you know, we 
kept looking for, well, is this the place to try it? And I just remember being so thrilled when we did this move where she falls onto a bed and then we flip over her and then dolly around her upside down and she appears to be stuck to the ceiling as if she could fall at any second. And it just, it, it was this moment where this kind of silly technical device just loaded the scene in such a beautiful way and allowed you to kind of feel the, the unhinged moment. Beautiful, such great filmmaking. Karin and David, do you want to talk about that topic? You know, it's funny. Um, I'm remembering I was making what was for the for the script a pretty low budget uh, movie called Destroyer, which was my last film, and it opens on on Nicole Kidman um, essentially waking up with blasting sunlight in in her face, and you recognize that she's sort of physically and psychologically seems to be a bit of a wreck. And um, but we needed to in the script and as something I wanted, which was like a brief title sequence, I, I wanted something to precede her face. And we were really stuck and we were just like, what, what is this supposed to be? And I was like, well, technically, I think for myself, what I want it to evoke is the quality of being in sunlight where trees might be moving the light around, but your eyes are closed. What do you see when your eyes are closed and bright sunlight is in your face? And we were like, how do you, um, how do you evoke that? And then one day my cinematographer, who I've now worked with more than once, um, Julie Kirkwood, she said, what if we take the lens out of the camera and just manually let light in ourselves, cover where the lens should be, and then experiment with what happens when, when we let light in with no, with no glass piece. And it had this quality of um, kind of organic, pulsing, almost like is it, is it cellular body, bodily? Is it, what is it that we're looking at? It had a, a kind of molten quality. And I was like, that's the effect. And, and then we built a sequence out of this incredibly simple, incredibly, um, frankly, inexpensive, you know, way of doing it. Just let's expose, you know, expose light to the camera without a lens. Um, and it, it was one of those kind of finding the openings, um, that, that creates a kind of mysterious, um, quality to the opening. And, uh, that was something we just sort of had to arrive at by being forced. That's great. And it seems like with both these cases, it always comes from what's the character feeling or what's the story, what's the theme. It's never working back from a visual idea into something. And I think that's why there's so much emotionality to what you guys do. Or it serves the moment. Like there was a great moment in the fighter when they were very excited to have dinner because Mark was going to have a big fight that was going to be starting his career again and everybody was happy in the second act and instead it ends up in a crime night with his brother going to jail that ruins everything and his hand gets destroyed but when he first comes into the restaurant i'd seen the rehearsal on the uh, mark and amy come in and meet the whole family the sisters and everybody and i saw a rehearsal that i, I kept saying to the uh, operator the steadicam operator um 
I've worked with so many, so forgive me if I don't always remember their names. It was either Jeff Haley or Dave Thompson. Um, and I kept saying, no, 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 that's not it. That's not it. And we kept, no, no, I saw it in the rehearsal. That's not the move. It felt right. And then he said, oh, you mean when I took it off the stand, <laughs> off set? And I said, yeah. yeah. And that's what's in the movie. Because it was just this perfect energy of like, it goes like, like this and it and it comes it goes like this and then it shows you the room and you see the whole family and then you pick up Mark and then here comes Mark and Amy and you take them right into the hug with Mickey O'Keefe the real cop who played himself and the hug it just it's just a, it's a beautiful it just came out beautifully um, and the thing the thing in American Hustle um, was very serendipitous because Christian the root of that movie was in Christian Bale's backyard he wanted to play this real-life guy, uh, Mel Weinberg, who was a, all, one of the criminals who have their own moral justifications, who are the most interesting layered characters. I like underworld characters who have their own moral calculus. And they, have a, they always end up with a morality lesson, a lesson, or they have to, the circumstances force them to grow out of it and get better. But I like when they've had to make all these adaptations to survive. So Christian's character was, from the beginning, this guy with the comb over. And he, being a method actor, learned how to construct it himself meticulously um, in real time. And, uh, <laughs> but it wasn't until we were in production for a long time. The movie was originally supposed to begin just with him going into a room. And here's mediums of style, right? I knew this was going to be lush and delicious, the whole movie. Uh, it was, it's like a beautiful uh, purple velour jacket. It's just the whole movie... The, 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 I feel like you could eat it. You know, it's just, the, the colors are so rich. And that's Lena Sandgren. And, uh, and it, it just was deliciously colorful and uh, al alive and energetic. And then you just, and Judy Becker designed the set, my, my biggest build, so he could go down this hallway into this room. He was supposed to just go into a room, see two surveillance guys in a bathroom. Audience has no idea. Love when the audience is gripped but has no idea, right? Like Mulholland Drive, I had no idea what it was about. But I, but, but, but I, but I was riveted. That's quite a feat. I was never bored. I was like, wow, what was that? Okay, so, so but it was amazing. That's just pure filmmaking, right? Um, so. He's supposed to go down the hall, go in this room, and then have this tension with Amy and Bradley, and the, and the surveillance thing's never explained. And then they do this, which we'd choreographed to the song uh, by Steely Dan in slow motion, and I did five takes in slow motion, playing it on a little boom box, which means I was locked into that. And it was only after I did that that I said, why did I not back that up <laughs> with shooting something regular without playing music? But it worked, thank God. So that, that so, so because it, cause, cause we were all feeling it, and so the whole intro. But before that, I said the movie really should begin halfway through production with Christian constructing his hair. It's right. That's the metaphor for the whole movie. We all have I identities. We we all grow up and have to go into public and figure out what we're going to wear, what we're going to look like, right? And you have to help your kids figure that out, and you feel how vulnerable and 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 how vulnerable that is, and how human we are. So he, this is very important to him, and he spends three minutes doing it. And then he goes down the hall, and he, he's very, he sees the surveillance guys, what's that? And then 
Amy comes in, everything's happening between them. Not a word is spoken, but something's going on with them. Bradley comes in and says, what's going on? You insulting me? Da, 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 da. Eventually gets to, wow, there's a love triangle here. There's, we don't know. There's a lot of tension. Christian Bale says, don't touch me. That, make, that bothers me. Bradley goes, oh, that bothers you? I was trying to help you. I wasn't trying to bother you. If I was trying to bother you, this is what I'd do. <laughs> and now his hair that he spent three minutes, <laughs> he spent three minutes fixing is like this. And it's just this, this, nobody moves. It's like this destruction of someone's pride. And then Amy, even though she's on the outs with him at this time, her character, she's fixing it but like an annoyed ex-wife. She's, she's like, you know, who knows how to do it? She's like, just don't touch him. He doesn't like to be touched and everything. Uh, anyway, so that, that was just a great thing that arrived late. Sometimes things arrive late. And I love that opening. I was actually going to reference it when we talked about openings, because for me, when... Because um, first you have a title card that says some of this actually happened, and then you have something about the plaza, but then you go right to a shot of Christian Bale doing this, teasing the comb over. And so it's... Um, it's just such a fun juxtaposition between some of this actually happened going to something like hair. And the, the way he's doing it both with so much concentration and high stakes that it has to work, but it's also so haphazard about how he does it. And so that to me said, okay, this is going to be funny, but also kind of intimidating, like the way he's focused on it. And so in, in just such a small sequence, it said everything about what the rest of the movie was. And just like we talked about the Fleischmann's opening and in Karn and the invitation, you know, a couple going to a dinner party, hitting a coyote, and then putting it out of its misery. I mean, that is the short film of the movie we're about to see. It's so it's so important when you have such a, an original tone to set people up for it appropriately. And so if you guys could talk a little, little bit more about that process, is that something that's existing in the scripts that you get? Or do you sometimes see it and be like, mm, the, we, we haven't set the movie up yet. I need to directorially do it or talk to the writer or it, about the examples or other examples. It's just such an important part of what we do as filmmakers. I mean, it's interesting because I think another thing that probably we share is um, recognizing that it could be, it's more important that the audience be engaged than they know what's going on. And um, I really think something I discovered in that opening that you're describing in The Invitation was that it had been f far longer. We were hearing a lot more about the history and the sense of anticipation and dread leading up to this night and the notion that, that, that the main character is <clears throat> going to visit his ex-wife in the house he shared with his family and her, um, where she is now with a new husband and throwing a party and gathering all of the old friends together again. And I realized it doesn't, that stuff will come out and we can learn just really, really sort of slivers of information, but it's really more the tonal dread in the performance and the silence between these two characters who are a new couple on, in a very fragile place. That's actually the more important thing to hook us in to the sort of, you know, the emotional dynamics of the, of the movie. And so, like this idea of catching up to having an opening that demands that the audience 
have to start paying attention and catch up to what is happening seems like something we all either find or demand of the opening. Absolutely. Ideally, if it's also really entertaining. Uh, oh, and know, yes, which, yes. Which, which is like, again, you're always looking for that, you know, that, that uh, snow leopard that they see once a year in the Him Himalayas. You know, it's like, how do you find that thing that's entertaining? And because I will say this in answer to your question, the most important thing in Silver Linings and in American Hustle for Tone, for the actor, for Bradley Cooper and for Christian Bale was that they were under tremendous stress. Mm -hmm. That was the first thing that had to be felt. Yeah. And we didn't know why. Always but, hustling. But, but No, no, but we knew they were under, the moment you meet them, the opening, just like, I don't know what this stress is, mm -hmm. but boy, they're on, they are under a lot, this is, they're under a lot of stress right now. Okay. And, I don't, and I don't know what it is, but, and, and every, but it's a lot of stress. And uh, Inaritu, here's a good tone thing. I, before he made Birdman, I, I happened to see him, and he said he was going to make a comedy which to me, if you knew his previous work, um, I said, you, you, you're gonna make a comedy? He said, yeah, I said, is it gonna involve people dying from cancer and getting hit by cars and your children getting hit by cars? And it's like his films, which are wonderful, were like an Olympic decathlon of the most horrible things that could happen to you. Um, and they were played dramatic. He was out, he was like, like, that's like very often considered the big leagues. And I always like to joke that I would happily debate this at the United Nations. I would represent, you know, Billy Wilder, Frank Capra, um, you know, you guys. I, saying that serious art does not just have to be... Serious. Serious drama that's suffering. That, that is a great debate that I would love to have. Because I don't, I don't, and that's, it's a common uh, truism that, that, that if you're, if you're dark and serious, that means you're a more serious filmmaker. Um, so Inaritu said, yeah, what do you suggest to me? And then so, and so, and so I made suggestions that I completely forgot. And then when I saw him three years later, and I absolutely adore Birdman, and I'm in awe of it. Um, and uh, that is also a perfect example of Michael Keaton is life and death, and then absurd shit is happening to him. He's, he's serially humiliated, but that's what makes him a great hero, is that he never stops. No humiliation will stop him, and I, it makes me love him. I always have to love my characters, and I want everybody on the set to feel the love for the characters. So I interviewed him for uh, Birdman at some Q&A, and he said, you told me, you gave me this advice. I was going to imitate him, but I'm probably not going to do such a good job. But it, just because it would be fun. You told me, do you remember? I said, no, I don't remember. He said, you said every single thing, even if it's a peanut, a little peanut, it must be life and death. I was like, wow, that's good advice. Yeah. No, 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 because I'm always having to remind myself of that advice. Because you know, you're writing. Brad Pitt said to me years ago, it's sort of ridiculous, like 15 years ago, it feels ridiculous to always have to be so dramatic. But that's our job. And you mentioned style, and I've been told my movies are heightened. I think 
many movies are heightened. We're, we're presenting a heightened, and there are many filmmakers who say, no, I just want to you know, do it like the day feels, right? But my, some of my favorites are movies that they are heightened. Everything's heightened. The, the situation is heightened, is heightened, the stakes, the pressure, the, the contradiction of the hams, you know? I mean, everything's, every contradiction is like, oh God, this is crazy. Hold on, I'm about to deal with the worst moment of my life. Well, and also yeah. this notion of opera, like I think we all, um, as filmmakers probably, whether we know it or not, we're, we're translating, I, I hope, at our best, deeper truths with oftentimes I think very, very pure visual storytelling, that that's a big part of what we do. And it's funny, David, because you're, you're talking about American Hustle and Silver Linings and The Fighter, and I love those films, but I, th there's an image in Three Kings, which I think is potentially speaking to where we remain culturally, politically, um, kind of geopolitically, of Mark Wahlberg being choked to death with oil. And that image said more to me about the moment we lived in. And I don't know how you feel about the film. I don't know if it's a film you love, embrace, have misgivings about. But that image tells the story of the United States relationship to the rest of the world at that time and still. And so there's this opportunity with kind of extreme images or simple images to actually kind of um, set the tone for the work you're making, but also set the tone or express a tone for the world we live in. And I think of that as a moment that sort of has a, speaks to it, speaks to a time, but continues to speak to our time. Thank you, Karen. And I, and, 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 uh, I, I, uh, I, do, I do love the film and love the people from the film, yeah. I, you know, I love everything that's being said, and I, I, I so agree. Um, those, those first few minutes in a film are just this sacred time where you're, you are establishing this discourse and, you know, giving clues as to how are you supposed to take this. And one of the things that we like to do a lot is, is early on, as early as we can, discover what is the music of the movie. And it's not necessarily the music that you will hear. Sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, it's just a song that for us, or a piece of music that just captures the feeling that will be our kind of our North Star as we make it. And we'll play it for um, crew and actors. Um, and then sometimes, you know, we'll hear a song and we'll go, oh my God, that is the sound of our movie. And then, you know, in the case of Little Miss Sunshine, there was a band, Davachka, that we just felt they had this one album that had what for us was the sound of the movie and we opened the film with this one song and you know it, it was very different from the kind of comic tone that you might expect it starts very kind of dark and somber but it allowed us to kind of create this low from which we could rise the movie eventually tells you what it wants yeah so how do you listen to that? If the movie's telling you, what skills are you guys using to dig deeper and find that quintessential image or the right score or music? How do you listen to your movie? 
I, I don't know. It just made me think of a story. It's not exactly what you're asking, but it was the movie telling us something. When, when we shot Little Miss Sunshine, we shot it pretty much in order. And while we were working on the script, we, there was the end scene. There was a scene where the family, after the um, pageant, you know, they, they're going to this beauty pageant, and their daughter um, gets basically booed off stage, and the family supports her. Then there was a scene where they all left, and they go and have a picnic together. That was in the script. And we kept saying, that ah, just doesn't, how do we, we wrote it probably 30 different times, and we never really liked it. But we had a version of it, and we went to shoot it, toward the end of our shoot and the whole family was assembled except Alan Arkin and they were sitting there laughing together and talking about old like grandpa you know that and we we got about I don't know five minutes into the first take and we just looked at everybody knew that this was never going to be in the film it was just so crystal clear it was wrong and I mean, we sort of knew it all along but we couldn't find the answer and and, but we just shut down the shoot, and it was, it was such a great feeling to kind of know that, okay, yeah, we, we can do this. Like, we don't have to shoot this. Um, but it's, it is, like, that's an extreme example of the movie just saying, um, you know, this isn't right here, or what is right. And uh, I, I think that's what's so great. I mean, I think, you know, every film is different. Like you're saying, it's like raising a child. You can't tell somebody how to raise their child because every child is different, and... Movies, like each movie feels like a completely different challenge for us. And that's what we love about it. But, um, you know, I think, yeah, so it, it's just you have to keep, you have to always approach every day that you're shooting or, you know, every part of the process. It's, it's this living thing, you know, it's just, and I think that's what's great in why it's never boring, you know. I mean, you're always like afraid that you're just making the biggest mistake of your life. That's a good thing, I think. If you feel like you could be really... I mean, I think if you are being... You know, I, I think our challenge is always, how do we be more risky? You know, how do we, pu how do we push ourselves more? Because sometimes it's easy to do the safe thing, and that's... Uh, well, and sometimes it's like your, you know, your children are calling you from prison, you know, and and you're sort of just like, oh, how how did I get here? Um, and 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 you know, you you can you can kind of feel like I I missed something, I I missed the ball somehow, and that's a that's um that kind of terror is actually really important, I think, to feel as as directors, because um, I personally think it's sort of a fallacy, this idea of complete command every second of the way. I, I just, I don't believe it. I don't think we can be artists if we are in complete command, because there's a, I don't know, something kind of hermetically sealed and claustrophobic and uncurious about it. And so... I do think too, like when we have moments where our our movies are telling us it needs something that isn't there yet, or needs something that we're not seeing, um, it's painful. But I do think that's also kind of part of this larger uh, mission to figure out really what is your film meant to be and say and feel like. And how often is it that you get into the editing room and you see that first cut or, or even after you've worked on it for a while and you're like, oof, this is not the tone or, or, oh, maybe this should be the tone and this isn't what I expected. Can you talk about that process? Because I, 
imagine that's quite unwieldy. The worst day of the entire project, right? I don't know. For it's just the hardest thing. Uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I tone is something that, that you never stop seeking to land, and um, you know, indefinitely editing. You know, you're for us in the kind of movies we make. We want it to feel effortless and authentic, and yet, you know, anyone knows that. Uh, a film set and all the moving parts can be very um, in need of wrangling. Mm -hmm. And so you're trying to figure out how to create life and not control too much, but still shape it. And, um, you know, there were certain things like uh, at the end of Little Miss Sunshine, there's a moment where they've all been detained and um, the script originally called for them to be handcuffed together. And so we, you know, did that, and we felt a little weird about it, but it, it felt like maybe is it one step too far? And then we finished the scene and we're cutting, and then we realized that isn't working. That seems too, it doesn't seem truthful. So we painted out the handcuffs that were around their arms, and, you know, it was a still enough shot, and we were, you know, saved. Do you guys, do you guys save budget and time for reshoots, knowing that, you know, because you're being so unique, there might be <laughs> fails. There might be things that aren't successful, and you might have to go back and do, do something about it. I know people do that. I, I've always, I've always had to beg for the yeah. reshoot. If I, if I needed the reshoot, I've always had to lobby for why. Um, I haven't yet encountered a production that's sort of like, we'll put some padding in there for your process. Um, that's. <laughs> That, that hasn't quite happened, but I look forward to the day. You, you almost want to welcome a, a problem so profound that they have to let you do something, and then you'll squeeze in a few other things yes, in that exactly, reshoot. Exactly. I love hearing any idea from anybody on the team, um, and because you never know what discovery is going to happen. Um, and... Uh, in the in the department, I, I no, we never plan for reshoots or anything. And my people think there's improvisation in the films that I do. There's very little, but I do receive what happens when the actors are in the moment if they start saying or feeling things. But they're very um, collaborative with me about the script and wanting to stick to the script. Uh, here's an example of a movie telling you what it wants to be. Um, so Jennifer Lawrence's character in American Hustle, the real character, eventually hung themselves in a later life because she suffered from depression, which um, the movie told me that she should be more crazy than depressed um, and inspired and smart. So the week for leading up to this week, the grips and the, and the stunt department kept saying, where are you going to put the hook in the ceiling? And I said, what hook? And they said the hook where she's going to hang herself. I was like, oh, God, Jesus, she's going to hang herself. And so as the, day, as the day got closer, it just felt wrong. I was like, wrong. So fortunately, I had these two tremendous athletes, uh, her and Christian. And there we are in the little boys' room in this house in Boston, uh, this red-painted room in the house that was the kids' room. And I said, okay, it's an audible, which you know in football means you change the play at the last second. I said, here's the scene. Here's what's going to happen instead of she's not going to. And that still would have been funny if she hung herself because I was going to have them get her before she had died and cut her down. And then 
she would be coughing and choking and they'd be yelling at her for doing it. Because anytime I've encountered anybody who's tried to kill themselves, you're mad at them, um, is my personal experience. Um, with people that I love, you're like, fuck you, man. We're not, none of us is leaving. Um, so, you know, don't start, <laughs> don't start leaving. Um, so, um, we all want to leave sometimes. So, uh, it was still would have been funny because she would have said, how could you argue with me when I've just almost hung myself, you know? And they, but so instead what happened was this scene with Christian and Jennifer where you come in, I just recorded it and it was dictated brilliantly by my brilliant teammates and then turned into script pages. I said, you come in in a fury, Christian, uh, you're on the bed telling your kid, Jennifer, that uh, your father's, his father's a son of a bitch, but don't ever repeat that. And, um, and then this tornado happens between the two of them that uh, they could not wait to get in there and do it, even though they had just learned it. It's amazing. And that was going to be a question I asked, is how much imp improvisation do you guys do? Because your shot choices and design are, are just just right. I mean, they feel your movies are so well crafted, but yet the performances have so much spontaneity to them and they're so alive. And so that was a question you just answered that you do very little of it. But how about for the rest of you guys? Is there anything that you get in there and, and improvise and how much rehearsal do you do leading up to a project? I mean, I think, um, I, I think there's this sort of, um, we have this sort of uh, like voodoo attraction to the notion of improv as if it um, delivers greatness because we're all sort of just, you know, ready, ready to offer our greatness. And in fact, I think most improv is, is an exercise in, in actors looking at each other and feeling kind of the effects of their expressions. And I don't actually really, like I've found that improv often kind of devolves into just people repeating each other back to one another. Mm -hmm. That being said, there is important stuff that can come from it. But I like the notion of a script serving as a blueprint for even things that feel out of control or casual or thrown away. And I, it's something I say to actors a lot. Like, I just think this is something you're saying as you're walking out, to, out of the room. Like, you don't need to land every, um, we don't have to hear every word even. It's about a, a, a vibe and it's kind of almost about a physicalization of what you're communicating. Um, that being said, when I was making the invitation, because it was 20 days of shooting and sometimes 13 characters in a single location, I knew I had to rehearse it. Um, and I spent three days rehearsing it from beginning to end so that I could know, you know, how to make the best use of those, those 20 days, um, and, and not spend four hours talking about whether or not somebody should be going to the bathroom right now and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So it, it kind of depends, I think, on the project. Karen, I heard in an interview you did with um, Ryan Johnson, you talked about working with your composer at the script stage. Is that right? I was curious if you did that for the invitation, because that seems like the perfect project to wanting to know the rhythm, the score, an actor being able to listen to it as they're walking down the hallway with the right sort of presence. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's a case of that. It's but. so funny because um, The Invitation was a, a movie I made in 20 days for a million dollars. And um, the only way I could really have a legitimate score was to piggyback on the leftover time that my composer had when he was recording other 
artists for other movies. And sometimes he'd be like, get in here. I have, you know, 90 minutes and I still have a session and this incredible violinist or this incredible string player. And so I had to live kind of, um, you know, hand to mouth with the score. And we would then record all these elements before we started shooting as a way to, um, set that tone, you know? And then as we built those elements, we realized this kind of skeletal um, string approach was the score. And we just started um, building that even before we started shooting. And it really, that's now how I work. I did it with Destroyer as well. We essentially recorded um, major thematic um movements and then would play them in the makeup trailer for Nicole and for Sebastian and kind of help them feel like, I always like to say like, you feel your lives are small, but the movie is attempting to say there's grandness in every small life. And I want you to hear the music that would accompany all these small pathetic moments essentially. And it really helped them to understand their performances. Um, so now that thing that happened by necessity um, in making a score before you actually shoot the movie or making a lot of the score um, is something I do now routinely. It's great. It's so effective because the score doesn't feel like it's on top of your movie or your characters. It feels like it's literally embedded in them and with their spine. I mean, it's, it's really, it's beautiful, very smart. Do you ever listen to it when you're shooting? Like, like, like you're watching the scene and then you... So it's funny that you ask that because, in fact, when we were doing that um, effect where my DP was just covering, covering where the lens would have been on the camera with her hand, we played what I had a feeling was going to be the opening piece of music so that the way she would move her hand had a kind of rhythmic tentative quality in conversation with the, the, the piece of music and the music changed a bit. And obviously I was using that footage and dissolving it and creating a real sequence out of it with, with other pieces later in that, those dailies. But, um, I do sometimes have the music playing just to have people feel, feel a, a different kind of vibe beyond what it is they're playing in the scene. I heard a story of an actor who said, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything. I'm not doing anything. And the director had a score already composed. And so he showed him the playback with the score. And the actor said, oh. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 another director told us about how everyone was worried the actor wasn't doing anything. And they were like, this is going to be a disaster. And then when they added music, suddenly this blank face just filled up with uh. feeling. But same thing. We, we had a funny experience. I guess like we can say this. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> said this? We'll find yeah. out. This um, is being recorded. Yeah. Oh, great. Do you guys want to comment um, first? <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I mean, we just did a series and um, we were cutting the pilot and we, while we were planning it we heard this music that we just loved and we felt like this is exactly the tone it's just perfect for this this material by Carolyn Shaw who's an amazing perform uh, composer so we cut our episodes with her music and we were feeling like this is we've we've got you know this is the it's working 
but the writer and the executive producer didn't like the music. And they and even the studio didn't like the music and they so we were getting it was the most upsetting thing about the entire project where we just felt sick because we felt it was so right for it. Um, and then at one point we said to the writer and the executive producer, okay, why don't you take the episode and write put music in that you think is right for it? And so they spent a weekend trying to do that. And then at the end of that weekend they came back and they said, You're right. It, we took the music out and it didn't feel like the show anymore. So it was really sort of, I mean, because the shows are so different because, I mean, talking about, we're all talking about films more or less, but we, you know, series, streaming, you haven't done that, right? Not yet. Not yet. Okay. You know, but it's actually, a different experience. It, it, um, it's funny that you use Caroline Shaw because we, yeah. so, so in, in Yellow Jackets, um, I did the same thing. I pitched to the team that my composer, Teddy Shapiro, would compose a lot of the score first. And they were like, what? You know, like they they were really freaked out by it. But I was just like, I, I feel you will be well served by this process. And one of the main components of Teddy's score was Caroline Shaw, this composer in her own right, but somebody he's collaborated with a lot who is um, a, a, a voice magician she has perfect pitch and she can do all these things that um are technically kind of um like freakish um and so she so we recorded all of these sounds with caroline first and then once we saw that to picture i think everybody just breathed a sigh of relief because they were like oh okay i i see it but um but in television it is interesting to see how much more um conversation there is about music without really sometimes I find there's so many voices in the mix but not necessarily a sense of well how do we get to the desired effect using things like score and sound design let's let's talk a little bit more about working in tv Um, I know we have a lot of directors who do direct television here what's that process especially coming from making so many features that are so much uh, your vision coming in and it's a different collaborative structure or is it not for you guys given what you've done before? Um, I think some of the questions are, you know, because you're not writing your movies, when you are doing television, if you have an idea that really needs to change tone, do you ask for script changes or not? What's that process like? And um, also protecting the vision that you set up for a series after you have left it because you obviously care so much about it. Um, if you don't mind sharing your thoughts about that. And David and I will listen. Well, it's, it's definitely taking all the issues that we've been talking about in film uh, and complicating it because now you have to not only communicate tone to your crew, you have to communicate to the other directors who may be following. And um, I mean, it's just the apparatus is so much bigger and you have less prep time. That's the thing that always strikes me when you go to do these things. You have no time. You have time. Less that, time in post. Yeah. So it's just it. It's just ridiculous. It 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 is dysfunctional, and we do need to figure out how to rethink. Especially we're talking li- kind of limited, limited series. series. I mean, TV series. You know, after a few return. years, it is a groove. But that that groove is assumed to be existent, existing in a limited series and in a limited series you're figuring out everything 
Um, it's like laying the track in front of the rolling train. So, um, you know, definitely music. Um, the biggest thing, and we haven't really talked so much about this, is just casting. You know, like you find the group of actors who get the tone and can preserve it without you there. I mean, who on some level didn't need you there in the first place. You chose them, they get it, and they become the protectors of the tone. And, you know, on Fleischman, it was incredible. These people, we were so worried about these long bits of dialogue, just pages and pages. Of, yeah, and voiceover. But and voiceover. But, but these actors found a way to, you know, make it happen at a tempo. That's another thing that we could talk ages about, you know, or endlessly about is, is tempo and trying to find the right pace. But um, so, yes, casting is, is always just your biggest move. Thanks for sharing that, you guys. Um, do you want to say? It sounds very intimidating to uh, to do the unlimited series, <laughs> right? It, like it's like you're going to jump onto a train that's moving very fast, right? Yeah. Look at him. And 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 you you know, for the most part, you don't. You're not fully at, you know, con, in control of the reins. You know, you're 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 trying to convince everyone this is the right and they want they care about what you think but you know and it's scripts just, are being written as you're trying to plan i mean that's the and, other and thing then, this in some series they're not even the scripts aren't even written it, so you know it's it's the, the thing that episodes, we all start just, with is are we all making the same movie are we all making the same series and it is you know this crazy um you know you use everything you can to communicate what it is you're trying to do. But I would also, you know, we also pick things where we, projects where we just love the writing or the writer, the voice. So back to the improv question, and and it's sort of um, part of this question too, is just uh, if you do really love the words and the sound of them and the, what they're saying and all those, I think we we have to feel that kind of commitment to at least what's on the page. It can change, but for the most part... We're always really interested in kind of hearing it the way it's uh, like we we love the actual you know word for word pretty much, and we usually hire writers who feel the same way about the material, or actors who feel the same way, so that they come really prepared. That and when they are, then all of us, if we're all prepared, we can we can do something else on the day. But it's just a really great feeling to have this sense of like a commitment to. The writing, I, I guess, I we just, I think, writing is the thing that is our, you know, that's the first thing that we say we love this writing. We usually like the writer it's, and have a great relationship with the writer. It's a shared contract with all the people involved. So if you get that right, um, you you know, it's there. It's there before you start shooting. The studio executives know it's there. The actors know it's there. This is what we're going for. And you know, there's improv possible in just the staging and just maybe the way it's delivered. But, um, you know, the idea that you'll come up with something better than what you've worked on for six months on the most controlled conditions. And now you're on set and, it, and you have 10 minutes to get this shot and it's raining and you 
don't want it to look like it's raining and you know everyone's you know you've got a miner who's about to be pulled off set it's not the time for fi finding a, a brilliant new line <laughs> well also it's interesting that you don't improv because i would say it's it's an achievement to make it feel like it was spontaneous you know that's not um, I think that's the other thing is making it not feel like people are just reading their lines, like they're actually, you know, if you get the right great actors, they do that. But, you know, it's also the way that a scene is constructed and the architecture of it. If you start messing with that, you know, it, it's just, I wouldn't want to be trying to wrangle the whole structure of the movie while I'm making it. I like knowing um, where it's going and, you know, try to take it further from what's on the page, but. David, is, is there improvisation, not in the lines, but in the blocking or in other aspects, an improvisational quality, or is that all very set? Just well, sort yeah, of getting I, at Valerie's question of it feeling very spontaneous. I come in with a shot list and a plan, and I like to tell everybody all the keys. Like, so we do it, I go, this is the movie right here. Not all that feeling of chaos out there with the grips and the cranes and everything. That's where you feel like, because the creative energy is like a special, uh, it's in an arc or something, right? Whatever that was in the Raiders of the Lost Ark. It's like in a thing. And, and so when it feels, I hate when it feels dissipated. Yeah. Like, you know, like, and it just feels like, where's the energy? Where's the focus? Where's the emotion of this character? You know, you want to feel it like this. So I try to tell everybody, on, and we go over everything going, this is how everybody's feeling in all these scenes. This is what these scenes feel like. And this is where I think the camera will go. And this is how we have seven setups here. All right, so you do that. But then there's an organic quality that evolves as you're doing it, right? So sometimes it takes on a life of its own, which is wonderful. Um, that, that, that everybody is so excited about it and feeling it so much that they can start living it. And what I like to do and these are the actors who have the most fun working with me uh, and me with them, is we just keep doing it till we forget that we're doing it. Like, I'll just, I'll just run the takes. And those actors are totally cool with that. And I can shout things to them in the middle of it, and they're like in the trance. It's not like, you know, they're at the Royal Shakespeare Company and they're going to go, you broke my whole thing. You know, they, they're just like, no, they're in it. They're in the water. They're like, cool, okay, yeah, hit me, right, great. And they just keep going. Um, and that's a saturation. And eventually they stop acting. As you, know, you say, the best thing you can say to an actor is stop acting, don't act. And De Niro says that. He says, do, do, less, less, doing too much. People don't do that much. Does he say that to other actors on the no, set? When, when they ask him. No, 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 no. He would never say that. But if they ask him, they all go to ask him. He, he, you know, I just think it's, not, you know, just don't, anyway, yeah. yeah. I, Very often I give a direction which is to say stop acting. Um, you know, which means they have to trust. We, they know it. No, no, they're just what they're, how they're being, mm -hmm. right? Which is a great act of trust. Yeah. yeah. We try and avoid long conversations on set about motives and things. You know. Oh my God. It, you know. You could talk about something and in that same time yeah. you could have shot it three times. Exactly. So we just say, okay, just try it. Just, just try exactly. it. Show, show exactly. us. And, um, you know, we we do like full on dance floor, you know, diagrams of what we imagine the blocking to be. Uh, and again, we try and do it ourselves just to kind of see, well, this is where I would get up and, 
it, it's, you know, and it's nice because then you can really imagine the coverage and the, the way the shots that are, in, you know, best based on that movement and just movement in general is always more interesting. Um, and then the actors, for the surprisingly, I think they like that they have this starting point that they know has been thought out and they'll occasionally, you know, change things. But it, there's still so much for them to do um, that it, 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 I don't think it's like constraining. That's great. Um, is there anything you guys haven't done that you're dying to do? Like what's, um, not what's next for you necessarily, but like you've done so much so well. Is there something you're just looking to dig into or loving the way you're, you're, the way you're making films now and you want to just keep doing it with different subjects? How do you feel at this moment in time? I mean, I, I personally feel like um, there's so many different kinds of movies I still want to make and, and um, it's hard, I mean, it's hard at any time and in any era to make movies, but it feels really hard right now just to be kind of brutally, brutally honest. Um, and I miss a certain kind of movie that actually I think you guys have the have have occupied so well that maybe you'll get to keep doing it, which is sort of the 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 drama that is clearly you know freighted with the the absurd comedy of real life. But I think those are the harder movies to get made now, and that's the kind of movie I would love to be getting an opportunity to make. You know, just human stories, character stories that um, can dig deep but live on the big screen. Live on the, I think living on the big screen is the big issue for, I think I'm sure all of us make things imagining that people are going to sit in a theater and watch them. And that's the, really the way to watch these movies or any, you know, any movie, but I think comedies, it's just, it's such a crime that people sit alone in their rooms with the laptop on their lap watching a comedy. It's just, it's, it's really, um, so I guess I would like to make movies that people want to see in a theater and we did can I say yeah and we saw the rough cut of Latimos Yorgos Latimos's new film Poor Things and I felt like this is a movie that I will get people to go to the theater it's just it's really we, we really loved it but it got me so it got me excited about it was it's a it's a little bit like a monster movie but it's so much more and it's really beautiful and it just it it just made me excited again about going to the theater and that that kind of movie could get people to go into a theater as opposed to a Marvel movie, which, you know, is fine. Those are fine. But I just like to see a movie that is um, really felt like just great cinema, like a Pressburger Powell kind of beautiful. It's just great. Highly recommend it. Also, the Dardan brothers are coming to American Cinematheque, right? Totally. Full, full yeah, retrospective. The, the Q&As. Arrow, the yeah, Arrow I just theater, we mentioned coming. them. So that's a cool thing happening. That wasn't your question, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is really a different time. I mean, the movies that we've made um, probably wouldn't get made or certainly wouldn't be seen the way that they were able to be, you know, um, seen in theaters for so long. Um, you know, you, you definitely have to figure out 
which has always been the case, how to cut through, how to make something that seems worthy of, you know, going out and, and you know, what? Leaving the house. Yeah, leaving the house. I mean, it, you know, in fairness, you can have a pretty amazing visual experience at home now, you know, with a big TV. So it there's, you know, but for comedy, it's that's where you got to be in a theater. And the community and the energy. I mean, I remember seeing so many of your films in the theater and being like, oh, someone thinks like me. They're laughing at the same thing. And I, we're all in this together, even though I feel sometimes like I'm the only one who thinks these things. I mean, you, you lose that when you lose the theatrical experience. Exactly. How about you, David? Is there something you Oh, I have like five or ten movies I definitely want to try to, to very, certain types of movies that I'm very excited to try to make you know, I would like to make that are movies that I've loved, types of movies I've loved or who have inspired me that I would like to do. And that's wonderful to feel that way. Um, and some of them will be smaller movies that were made for very little money um, that but can be beautiful. And some of them, I do. it is interesting now that the bar has been set so much higher uh, to, to reach people in the theater to think, okay... How do you get a story like this that will bring people to the theater? You know, that make a lot of people... I saw the trailer for Jennifer's new comedy uh, called No Hard Feelings. Anybody here see that trailer? Right? Didn't it seem like a great trailer? I don't know. I thought it was a great trailer. Uh, it's with the guy who did Bad Teachers, which was regarded uh, dismissively in this country, uh, grossed... Uh, $200 million with Cameron Diaz, uh, noteworthy for that purpose, that people, people, and not just for dumb commercial reasons, although those are not so dumb if you're not going to ever get budgeted, um, but because it meant that people enjoyed seeing something so incorrect, um, that, which is what Jennifer's new movie is. It's a big, incorrect fart uh, uh, that, 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 that looks unbelievably hilarious to me. Um, you know, her, her, she's hired by Matthew Broderick and another helicopter parent to help bring their son to life, you know? And uh, it, just, it just looks to me like, I think that, I, I, I think that could be commercial in the theaters. Um, I think probably The Hangover would be today. I don't know. Who knows? What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I, I, it, we, I do think also that horror... Is, horror, is, horror is, is never is went kind of, away. It's it's horror, gonna horror. it's gonna be evergreen. I think as yeah. a as a an experience that is communal and um, and now I think unlike when I released Jennifer's Body, I actually think there's a resurgence of movies that sort of play in that hybrid comedy horror space, which is interesting to see. I mean, that landing strip was very narrow ten years ago to make a movie about people in a house in a, in a, you know, and, and to have it connect with a big audience, right? Which that, that, that string of movies I did. And now the landing strip's even, it's tinier, you know, or if it exists. Uh, but it's still an interesting challenge, I think, um, if you can do something radical. Are there any thoughts you want to leave our audience with, you guys? I'm impressed you're all out on a Saturday morning. <laughs> this know. is amazing. Thank you. Thank, Thank you so all much. for coming. Yeah. I, it's it's yeah. great. Yeah, thank you for guys for doing this and for coming out on Saturday because I always learn things from 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 just yeah. the whole experience of being here. Yeah. Yes, I agree.
Yeah, I, I wish we could have a giant round table because it is, <laughs> you know, I, I, I love just getting to hear. We don't get to talk to our fellow yeah. filmmakers enough. It's just not. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's it, meaningful it, to it's see so you all here. important. Well, I hope we answered all your questions. You guys have been so generous. That's two hours of information and sharing. You guys are tremendous. And um, thank you for making the films you've made and the television. And please keep doing it. I can't wait to see what's thank next. You. Thank, thank you. you thank you, Valerie. Thank you. That was really beautiful. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this exclusive panel discussion. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 